See you later. Bye, guys. Bye. Have fun. Wonderful. Well, today we get to the final part of our Unmissable Church series, part four before we go into the Advent series next week. I call this message, The Compelling Example of Christ. And I'd be grateful if you'd turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 13. Now, Leon Morris, in his commentary of the book of John, says the gospel of John is like a swimming pool. Shallow enough that a child may wade in it, and deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. I love that description of the Gospel of John, because I think it's accurate. It's shallow enough for a child to wade in it, because it's so easy to understand. It's written in an incredibly accessible way, so that we may understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and may have life by believing in His name. But it's also deep enough that it can completely and utterly change our lives. And this passage of Scripture in John 13, personally for me, is one of my favorites. You see, for the last three years in Jesus' life, he has been doing some incredible ministry in Israel. He's been telling people about himself. He's been preaching the good news. He's performing miracles all around him. Crowds are following him more and more. And for the last three years, that has been his story. But now we find him. The night before he dies, the night before he gives his life away for a ransom for many, in the upper room just with his 12 disciples to talk to them about the Passover meal and to talk to them about things that are so dear and important to his heart. And so as we get to listen in this morning, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. And we're actually going to read from verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 35. So we can relive this moment with Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his own feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I sent receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is to he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Let's pray. Lord, what an incredible scene this is. The night before you gave your life away as a ransom for many. You did the unthinkable as you wrapped a towel around your waist and washed your disciples, your early church's feet. Oh Lord, would our hearts be open to this today? Lord, would the truth of your word not just be like Teflon around us? Would we not get distracted and not engage? But Lord, through your spirit, would you speak to our hearts and change our lives? Would we see you today? And would our lives never be the same as a result? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, at least for me, this is a challenging piece of Scripture, is it not? It's a challenging piece of Scripture as you see Jesus as the Savior of the world with a towel wrapped around his waist, washing people's feet. And I would argue that it is an even more challenging piece of Scripture to prepare and preach on 
Because all week as I've spent time once again in this word and I've seen Jesus afresh in this word, I'm freshly reminded of my own tendency and temptation towards selfishness in my life. See, when you look at Christ, you see complete selflessness. But when you look within, you see something a little bit different, don't you? And I think in different degrees and in different ways, we all have a tendency and temptation towards selfishness, at least to some degree, do we not? You know, one of the things that's been interesting for me as a dad over the years is that you never have to teach your kids to be selfish. It's not just unneeded. It seems to be perfectly natural. So you teach your kids to say mom and dad when they're really babies. You go, mom, dad. You're trying to get them to mouth. Usually their first word is like mine or something like that because they instinctively understand I'm going to look after me. I'm going to look after number one, and that is myself. I remember when our kids were little, and I remember doing it myself as well. Christmas Day, you get all these different gifts, and you've just got loads of gifts everywhere. And what's your biggest concern, having unwrapped them? That no one else touches them. So you put them all back in the sack. All the kids, they turn into little golems. You don't teach them this. But it happens. Why is that? Well, because I think in all our hearts, there's a tendency and temptation towards selfishness. To think it about number one. So you do you and I'll do me. And you would hope that you would grow out of it over the years. But sadly, we don't, do we? We might become more masterful at pretending that it's not something we struggle with. But it's actually still there. I remember reading a book about students, actually made by students. It's entitled, I Lick My Cheese. Wonderful title. Um, There's this book about these students that live together in the United Kingdom. When you go to university in the United Kingdom, you don't tend to stay living at home. That's like a Sydney phenomena. No one else in the world does this. When you go to university, nearly everybody else, you move away and you go and live on campus. So I'm on campus with 30,000 students when I was a student myself. And this is a book written by students that lived on campus together. And it really does reveal, well, some selfishness. These are all post-it notes. The whole book is made up of post-it notes that have been stuck on by one student to another. The first one reads this, please ask before you borrow my stuff. My skirt is now totally stretched after you shoved it over your fat backside. You are one of the most selfish people I have ever met, Tracy. And the whole thing is underlined. Another one, dear all, I have noticed that my shampoo seems to be very diluted. Kindly, please do not use it and then try to deceive me by adding what I can only hope is water. (laughs) Okay, Karen. This one was written on the inside of a toilet roll. I love this. This is genius. Written on the inside of the toilet roll, the cardboard bit right at the end. says, you promised, and I quote, if we all buy the toilet rolls, then we would never have to do it again. What do you call this then? That's right, the end of the last roll. Cheers, liar. (laughs) This one's a personal favorite. The washing up you didn't do is in my bed. Cheers, Al. Frank, Frank, when I said you can clean the kitchen, I didn't mean for you to paint it. You have just painted over everything, including the dust and white emulsion. It looks like a blizzard. Do you not know how to clean? Because this is not the normal way. The paint is already coming off the tiles and the oven hood. I'm going home for the weekend, so could you please try and sort it out, Stephanie? And then this one to finish. Pinned on a door, I hate you more than life itself. (laughs) 
You know, you would hope that when you're a child and you understand that tendency and temptation was selfishness, you would grow out of it. But because students still have it within them. And I would argue that we all struggle with it to different degrees. There's a tendency and a temptation in all of our hearts to different degrees towards selfishness. And my friends, it's this tendency and temptation, I believe, that can make this type of unmissable church series potentially so difficult for us to engage with. And in truth, as your lead pastor, I have sensed that many times as we've been preaching through this series, that this is a hard one for us. You see, we hear about that the church is the dearest place on earth. And we understand it in our minds. We hear from God's word that the church is is a temple. It's a gathering of believers. It's a family and a body. Indeed, it's the bride of Christ for which he laid his life down for. And so we're exhorted from Scripture that we need to make the church then the center of our lives. Not push it to the periphery, but make it the center of our lives. Because the church is the center of his word running all the way through. There's so much purpose and glory we're called to give ourselves to it. And then we hear Brennan preach last week on the glory of interdependence. How we're all a body, and by God's grace, he's given us all different gifts and abilities to use for his glory, to use within the body for the building up of the body. And there's something in our hearts that goes, this is true. I love this. You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit at work in your hearts. But there is also something within us that goes, I'm not sure I like this. Because this sounds busy, and this sounds costly. And do they not realize how many things I have going on in my life? And they would say that because they're pastors. What's that? Well, that's the flesh. It's the battle between the spirit and the flesh. And listen, you are not alone if you feel that because I feel it too. I feel exactly the same thing. What is that? Well, I think in part... It is the battle between the spirit and the flesh, which is why we're attracted to it, but also daunted by it at exactly the same time. Do I want to build my life around the church? Do I want to give my time and energies, abilities to the church? Do I want to build the church like Christ built the church? Yes, but no. And that's why to finish this series... I simply want us to stop and stare at the compelling example of Christ. Because what a story he has to tell. For this is the moment in Scripture when we see just one of these brief glimpses as to how he feels about his bride, his family, the little children in this text, the embryo of the early church, as we see him on his hands and feet washing their Such was his love for them and his affection for them. So two points this morning. Number one, the servant king's example. And then number two, the servant king's commission. But I do come to it as always really with just with one hope. And it's the hope that we would be freshly compelled by the example of Jesus Christ. The one that we're called by the grace of God to be imitators of. And I pray that we'd be compelled by his example. And as a result, church as an unmissable reality wouldn't just be duty for us. The fruit wouldn't just be, well, therefore I better come more. No, that would be duty. 
I pray that we're so compelled by his example that we would be delighted to give our lives away for the church. As we see that that's exactly what he did too. Two points then, and here's the first. The servant king's example. You know, just a few days earlier, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and what a moment that was. The crowds had found out that Jesus was coming, and so they lined the streets, and as they see Jesus approaching, they shout out in loud voice, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us! They're still not convinced that he's the Messiah. They still don't understand all that he has done, but they think he might be. So listen, Hosanna, they're throwing palm leaves. They're just going, this is national euphoria. Could this be the king? But now the crowds have all gone. And Jesus reclines at table in the upper room with his 12 disciples. And as he begins this meal with his disciples, as we read in the other gospel accounts, as the other gospel accounts tell us, he begins by giving a whole new meaning to the Passover meal. See, they were there to celebrate Passover. And this is something that the Jews had done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And each time they celebrated the Passover meal, it was always designed to point back to what happened in the Exodus. The book of Exodus that we all know well, the people of God are brought out of slavery from Egypt and into glorious relationship with the Lord. And ultimately, they came through the Passover lamb, a lamb that was killed. Each family member did it. And they, they take the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts. And so when the angel of death passed through Egypt, he went in and killed all the firstborns of each families, apart from those that are saved through the blood of the lamb. For hundreds of years, the Jews all gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate what God had done before. But now on this evening, Jesus completely reorientates the meaning of Passover and helps them understand that Passover not ultimately pointed back to the lamb. The lamb pointed forward to himself. And so he tells them about the bread as he picks it up. He says, listen, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That which would have always pointed back to the lamb. Now he's telling them it didn't always point to the lamb. It pointed to me. The lamb of God. The one who's come to take away the sin of the world. And then as he takes the wine, he says, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. You know, this is one of the most significant and staggering moments in all of redemptive history. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews had been gathering for the Passover meal, pointing back to the Exodus. But now Jesus reorientates the whole thing and helps them understand, no, this bread and the wine, it points to me. It points to me. I am the Lamb of God. It will be through my blood that you all will be saved. This is a drop mic moment in all of Scripture. And how do the disciples respond? This is how they respond. An argument breaks out. I mean, if the disciples, if nothing else, they give us all hope, do they not? They do. They are knuckleheads. Every time I read them, I just think, thank you, Lord, for picking these men, because they are just like me. 
It is an encouragement to see they will react at different times. An argument breaks out. What is it an argument about? Well, Luke's gospel records it first. It's not an argument about, well, hang on, are you sure that's what the Passover means? No, it's not, got nothing to do with that. An argument breaks out in their midst about who will be regarded as the greatest. They are selfish men. Even now, they're not really listening to the Savior very well or appropriately. They're thinking about themselves. Hey, when you come into your kingdom, who's going to be regarded as the greatest? You know, we've seen that movie before in Scripture, haven't we? This isn't the first time Jesus has talked to them about this. He's talked to them about it several times. Each and every time he's helped them see no true greatness is serving others. And here he is on the night before he died. And yet again, hey, who's going to be the greatest again? I could understand if at this point the Savior just gets up and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wring your necks one by one. I could understand that. But he doesn't. He is patient with them. He's not angry with them at all. He doesn't even appear to be frustrated. No, verse 1 of chapter 13 tells us that he loves them. And he was committed to love them to the end. So this is what he does. Verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. What an incredible response. The disciples are quibbling and arguing over who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be regarded as the greatest, like teenagers. And like teenagers, no one has thought, hey, who's going to wash people's feet in this moment? To be fair, this would be something that not even a Jewish slave would do. A Gentile slave would be assigned to wash people's feet. It was the lowest of the lowest of the lowest role. The disciples hadn't even contemplated, maybe one of us should do it. There's no Gentile slaves around, so who's going to do it? I don't know, but I don't care, because who's going to be the greatest? And while they're discussing this and arguing it amongst themselves, out of the corner of the eye, they see something incredible. They see Jesus wrapping a towel around his waist so that he can get on to proceed to wash their You know, this would have been a mind-blowing and silencing reality for every disciple in the room. Because although they haven't understood yet fully all that that Jesus is going to do, they have understood one thing. This is surely Him. This is surely the Messiah we've been waiting for. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. They had understood that. And so imagine the shock in their eyes when they see the King of kings and Lord of lords doing what he's now doing. See, my friends, this was indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the one who is proclaimed throughout all of Scripture as supreme in personhood. He is the image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is supreme in all of creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He alone is the one that can hold all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. 
He alone is the one who can mark off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. He is the one that breathes out the stars and names them and numbers them and sustains them so not one is missing. He is the creator of all things. He breathed out the sun. And he is the one who's supreme in the church. The Father has given Jesus as head over all things. This is him, supreme in personhood, supreme in creation, supreme in the church. And there he is. with a towel wrapped around his waist, doing the lowest of the lowest roles by washing their feet. What a staggering moment. Think about the lineup. Washing the feet of Judas, his betrayer. But I'm going to wash your feet. And then there's, well, there's Peter. Well, you're going to deny me three times tonight. But I'm going to wash your feet. And then each of the disciples, arguing, who's going to be the greatest? I want to be the greatest. Now me. Well, let me just wash your feet. Because I'm here to serve you. I care for you. I'm committed to love you. To the end. This was a staggering moment for the disciples. For the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who breathed out the sun is washing their feet. Staggering. The only thing that would be akin to it would be like King Charles this year on the 6th of May 2023 during his coronation. I know many of you watched it. If you didn't, you would have seen pictures. That moment when King Charles is sitting on his throne with a huge gold crown, a gold staff in one hand, a gold scepter in another. They are singing his praises. He's there in garments. It'd be like in that very moment, him saying, hey, thanks for that, guys. Taking the crown off, putting the scepter down, taking everything off, and then coming around the crowd with a bowl. That would have made front page news. King Charles is just a speck compared to the glory of Christ. And yet that's what Christ is doing. Washing people's feet. And yet, in all honesty, my friends, this was just a prelude. Tomorrow, having sweat drops of blood in the garden, and having staggered, seeing hell opening up before him, understanding all that it would mean to drink the cup of God's wrath to the full. Tomorrow, he would sweat drops of blood in the garden. And having been betrayed and arrested and unjustly tried, he would be whipped and scourged. A whole battalion would be gathered around King Jesus and they would put a purple cloak on him. They would put a crown of thorns on his head. They would beat him and mock him and spit on him. And ultimately then, they would drag him out in the height of pain and in the depth of shame to crucify him. My friends, as we stop and stare at Jesus this morning, I want to encourage you to behold your God. Because this is Him. You know, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe in truth, you don't even really know who God really is. You're still trying to figure out what is God like? 
Oh, behold your God. He's a God of justice and holiness, but he's also a God of love and grace and mercy and service. Behold him here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that anyone who believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And here he is. Staggering. And for all of us as believers, my friends, I want to encourage you. Behold your God. What a compelling example he has to show, doesn't he? I think if Jesus was alive today and walking around the earth as a human being, Every time a church email goes out about the lowest of the lowest jobs, his hand would be first up. Put me down for that. What a servant. What a king. A towel wrapped around his waist. What a compelling example he has to show us. And then, having shown us that example, he then gives us a commission, which is my second point. The Servant King's Commission. You know, there are certain moments in all of our lives that we will never forget. I'm sure we all have them. Moments that are vivid in our minds, moments that stand out in our minds, milestone moments maybe, or conversations, or celebrations, just moments that you're aware, I will never forget that. I'll never forget being there, I will never forget what was said. And there's no doubt that for John, as he pens these words for us here in this gospel, that this is one of those moments. And the way this is written, as John looks back under the inspiration of God himself, he is writing this with so much affection. Because he was there. He saw it. And yet we would be remiss if we weren't always to also to pay attention to the emotion and gravity of this scene from the Savior's perspective. From his perspective. Tomorrow, he is going to die. Tomorrow, he is going to give his life away as a ransom for many. And so these are his last few moments with the brothers that he's walked with for the last three years of his life. Tells us in verse 1, he loves them. They're his friends. In verse 33, he calls them his little children. Such is his affection towards them. And knowing then that he is about to die, it's so important that we feel his heart and understand his priorities. See, if you were going to die tomorrow, I submit to you, you'd pick your words very carefully today. And so it is with Christ. I remember some years ago, my fellow pastor in the UK, Pete Greasley, I remember his dad getting brain cancer. He was actually very, very healthy and very well. And then he started to have some headaches and he went in for an investigation and they found that he'd actually got a tumor on his brain. And shockingly, he then died two months later. And it was a very traumatic time for my friend, obviously, understandably. But one of the parts of the story that, that I'll never forget was when he went in um, for the will, for the will to be read and for all that, the way that works in the UK is you go in to hear the will read and you find out what you're going to own and how it's going to all work out. As the solicitor gives them the will, a letter pulls it, falls out. And it just said, to my dear Peter. 
and it was from his dad. As soon as his dad got brain cancer, he knew this was going to be the end. And so he wrote his son a letter just sharing with him his heart and his priorities for him. So it says, to my dearest Peter. And he tells him how much he loves him, how proud of him he is. And then he begins to say, he says simply something like, and now to the future. And he starts to address his son. These are my priorities for you. Champion these things. I remember Pete telling me all about it. And you just couldn't help but be emotional that your dad would write to you like that. And obviously that is a letter that he treasures still to this day. Well, Jesus' letter is written for us right here in chapter 13. Because as he's with his disciples in this moment, what he's doing is he's sharing his heart with them. I love you. You are my little children. And then what he's doing here is giving them his priorities for them. You haven't got me much longer. Give yourself to these things. And his commission then could not be clearer. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. He says, For I have given you an example, meaning about washing your feet. He says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than the master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent me. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And he echoes the same sentiment in verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. See, the Savior's example is so clear, is it not? It's so clear and it's so compelling. His example is one of service. His example as he looks at the early church around him is I'm going to get on my hands and my knees, I'm going to wrap a towel around my waist, and I'm going to serve you. And in the same way, his commission likewise, I believe, is oh so clear. How are we to respond to the compelling example of Jesus? By being just like him. By giving ourselves away for our family around us. For the little children that he's put into our lives. Other brothers and sisters around us. See, the church was never designed by Jesus to be some type of therapy that we tag along to when we can. Or a cafe that we just change our minds on depending on the mood that we're in. No, the church is a gathering. A gathering of believers who he knits together from different tribes and languages and nations. It's a gathering of brothers and sisters that he pulls together into his presence. It's a temple that he builds one stone at a time as a dwelling place for God. It's a body where we all have a part to play and it's a family. A family from God himself that we're called to wrap a towel around our waist toward and serve one another. We serve one another by rejoicing with one another, by weeping with one another, by caring for one another, by encouraging one another, by spurring one another on, by forgiving one another, 
We serve one another by showing hospitality to one another and praying for one another and carrying one another's burdens. And the list goes on. How How are we meant to respond then to the compelling example of Jesus? By being like him. By wrapping a towel around our waist and serving and loving those around us. Why? Why is this so important to the Savior? He is about to die tomorrow. Why is this so important to him? Verse 35. He tells us why. Verse 35. For by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. See, his whole point is as you give your lives away to love and serve one another, it's not just about building the church up in love. It's not just about building the family and building the body of Christ. No, it's more than that. As you do that, you will be the city on a hill that you're called to be. And as the communities and worlds around us look on, they will say, what's up with that? And they will see Christ in you. They will see Jesus in you as you serve those around you and as the local church gets built. See, all too often, I think, we can separate up missiology and ecclesiology. We can separate up mission and the church as if they're two different things. They're competing entities. And yet here, Jesus in verse 35 says, no, they're the same thing. You want to tell people about me in your communities? Great. Give yourself to the local church. Because it's through this, as you love one another, that they will know that you are my disciples. He puts them together. He puts the church and mission together for the glory of his fame and his name. And so here's my question to you. It's a question to me as well. It's a question I want you to consider. If everyone was to love and serve the church like you do individually, if everyone in this church was to wrap a towel around their waist like you do personally, then how much of Christ would be seen in our communities? If everybody copied you, think about yourself. Don't think about other people, how they're not serving you. No, think about yourself. If everybody served and loved the church like you do, how much of Christ would be seen? My friends, it's so important that we wrestle with this. Because what Jesus is helping us see here is the church is unmissable. Because by the grace of God, it's a precious thing in his sight. It's a family and a body and a bride that we serve in that it may be built up. But more than that, as we serve one another and lay our lives down for one another, we become the city on a hill that we're called to be so that our communities around us can see Christ. There's so much at stake. So no wonder, as we read in verse 35, in effect, no wonder yet again we see that the church is so unmissable. John Piper, in a message on the church, says it this way. He actually starts his message this way. I don't start my messages as good as this, nor finish them as good as this, but this is him. He says, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, 
The children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. An old pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's Eve in Pasadena fade into a formless gray compared to the splendor of the Bride of Christ. Take heed how you judge. Things are not what they seem. The gates of Hades, the powers of death, will prevail against every institution but one, namely the church. What a great way of starting a message. I will never experience that in my life, but I like the quote. The church, my friends, is the most important institution in the world. It is the assembly of the redeemed. It is the company of the saints. It is the children of God. It is a temple that God is taking us one stone at a time and building us together into a dwelling place for Him. And by God's grace, it is His bride that He laid His life down for and will return for. The church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. And to Jesus, the church was surely the dearest place on earth. He would give his life up for the church. That's why he exhorts husbands in Ephesians 5 verse 25 to lay your lives down for your wives like Christ did the church. He's saying, emulate me. He so loves the church that he gave his life up for the church. And the night before he does that, we see him with a towel wrapped around his waist on his knees. Just washing the feet. Just washing the feet of the church. Just washing feet. My friends, by his grace and for his glory, may we be like him. What a compelling example. What a compelling story he has to tell. So may we be like him ever increasingly in our lives. And may the church then be not only the dearest place on earth to us, but may it truly be unmissable. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for your example. Lord, it staggers us afresh as we spend time in your word this morning that you, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that deserved the fanfare of the earth, is instead seen with a towel wrapped around your waist, washing feet. Oh Lord, would you help us to be like you? Lord, we are instinctively, starting with me, we have a tendency and temptation towards thinking about number one, namely ourselves. Lord, you too have been tempted just as we are. You know what that feels like. And yet you were without sin. So Lord, through your Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to become more and more like you? Through your Holy Spirit, would you help us to be selfless people? To have eyes to see people how you see people? And Lord, would we live to serve you, the audience of one? And would the church get built as a result? Your bride. In your precious name, Lord. Amen.